Please stand. Our passage will be found in Acts chapter 1, verses 20 through 26. For it is written in the book of Psalms, Let his homestead be made desolate, and let no one dwell in it, and let another man take his office. Therefore it is necessary that of the men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day that he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So they put forward two men, Joseph called Barsabbas, who is also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, O Lord, who know the hearts of all men, show which of these two you have chosen to occupy this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they drew lots for them. The lot fell to Matthias, and he was added to the eleven apostles. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Lift your hands now and pray with me. Father, I pray that your word will speak to us. Be with my words, Father. Lord, I pray that it will be of power. May our ears have ears to listen. Father, may our hearts be softened. Lord, we do pray you be with the Baileys and McKinneys. Be with Nathan and Aaliyah as they're away. Bless them as they come home. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Please be seated. That was... I was most nervous about that part, so we're past the hard part. (laughs) So last week, Pastor Nathan spent time in this passage, and I want to spend another week. I think Nate said if he doesn't do well, it's because he did so well. We're going to bask in the glory another week. But I want to focus on, Nathan made the contrast between Judas and Matthias and these men, and this week I want to look deeper into the manner in which they were chosen. How Matthias was chosen. If we were playing, paying close attention to the reading of God's word and the weight of it, you should probably be a little scandalized when you read at the bottom there that they put two forward men and they cast lots to decide between them. Peter and the apostles cast lots to choose who would replace Judas. Maybe one of the most consequential coin flips ever. (laughs) An apostle being chosen the same way a football game has started. Basically, think about it. It's sort of crazy. So there's several ways we can deal with this passage. One of which, you know, I considered, all right, let's go to chapter 2. Another way, and I think the way this passage is often handled is, you know, we read it. We think of it as, okay, this is apostolic, this is, there's a lot of things that went on that, you know, we don't necessarily, so it's there, it's an example, it's an extreme outlier. What do we have to learn from this? Or, and what I would like to do with each of us today is to seek to understand what is God teaching us from our passage? What is God saying to us? Why, why did God bring this about? Why is it recorded in Scripture? In Scripture, Why did God lead the disciples by His Spirit to choose Matthias in this way? What do we learn from it? Well, before we begin talking about casting lots specifically and, and what we learn, I, I just want to point out 
to you the quick and the faithful action of the apostles in moving to replace Judas. Okay, so in our passage, I started in verse 20. Verse 20 is a quote partly taken from Psalm 69 and Psalm 109. It says, let his homestead be made desolate, let no one dwell in it, and let another man take his office. Peter understood this. Peter recognizes the truth of Scripture, and he applies it to this situation. Let another man take his office. Pastor Nathan highlighted last week in his sermon that this is a period of waiting for the disciples. They're waiting for the Holy Spirit to come. We're going to read and hear about it in the coming weeks. But they're waiting. However, in this time of waiting, they are not idle. And there's something that we need to learn from that. They're together in unity. They're praying together. And they also choose during this time to pick who will replace Judas. Now, had Jesus told them to do this? Well, no. At least... We're not told, and the way the passage and the narrative comes to us, we're not led to believe it. Did the angel who appeared to them tell them they had to replace Judas? No. So, again, what drove Peter? How did the disciples know? Well, they knew the Word of God. They knew the Scriptures. They knew it was foretold that someone must take his office, and so they acted. They chose to cast lots to put these forward these men to replace him. It's important to realize there's never, ever a time in our lives where idleness is excusable. There's never a time in our lives where inaction, idleness, is excusable. Even in times of waiting, God often causes and brings times of waiting in our life. We don't know what's ahead. We don't know what's around the corner. But God still expects you and I to act in faith. The scriptures contain the will of God for our lives, and we must not be sluggish in searching them out to know what God would have us to do. Not knowing the word of God will make it impossible to know what God wants. It's a simple application we can make right away from this. We must know the word of God. There's an importance in not neglecting the regular reading and studying of scripture. Faith hinges on it. The action of the disciples here hinged on their knowing Scripture. As I said, there's times a lot of you have, I have in life, not sure what's coming around the bend, not sure where God will lead next. Look to the Scriptures. God is telling you to act. You must act, and you need to know where and how. Disciples knew it, and they stepped out in faith. They certainly could have decided to wait. Honestly, you, you think about this. The Holy Spirit was coming wouldn't have been a bad idea to say, hey, let's wait till the Holy Spirit's given and then pick one. Right? I mean, <laughs> that, that would, we'd think that would be wise. But they, they act. They're together, they pray, and they act. Where do you need to act? Where are you sitting idly by where God wants you to act? Where are you delaying your obedience because you're not 100% sure what God wants you to do? Well, that's never the case. And I want to encourage you, just on this point alone, look to Scripture. Know it. Read it. Trust it. Be faithful to pursue God. And he'll make his will clear. But follow the word. Listen to God. I often think we overcomplicate obedience. We overcomplicate discerning God's will. God's word is clear. It's very simple. And so 
right off the bat, look to the word. Be encouraged by it. Be, relent, be unrelenting in your pursuit of the word of God. It has everything we need. Peter understood this. And it led him, he led the disciples in proposing to choose a replacement. <clears throat> okay, so now I want to, we're going to talk about casting lots. And I'll just, just to begin, you may be wondering what is casting a lot. It's a practice that dates back far. I want to look at some examples in Scripture. It's something that comes up repeatedly, especially in the Old Testament. But just to put it real simple, it's essentially flipping a coin. Okay? It's essentially, uh, it's a way of determining shares. It's a way of determining, all right, who gets what piece of the pie. Uh, you see it come up in, with inheritance a lot. It's the use of inanimate objects to determine an outcome. Okay? Coin, dice, sticks. All right? It could be a number of those types of things. And like I said, historically, these were used in the distributing of inheritance. A big part of inheritance is often involving land, especially during this time in the Old Testament. And so lots were cast to determine who got what. This is the way they dealt with that. Uh, and then, so if we look back in Scripture, we can see a number of examples where we see the precedent of lots being used in decision-making. Okay, so there's only, in the New Testament, two instances. There's this one in our passage, and do you remember the other one that came right before here? It's kind of interesting. It's when the soldiers cast lots for Christ's garment. And I, not to make it too big of a deal on that, but I think, wow, that's kind of a crazy thing. That just a few, <laughs> just recently in the disciples' memory, they were doing this, and it was a part of the humiliation and crucifixion of Christ, and now they're doing it to pick an apostle. Not too much on that, but I find that striking. Turning to the Old Testament, there are far more examples. Um, like I said, very often in regards to inheritance, dividing land. And I'll just say before I read through these, you think about, and I have more heard of this secondhand, but all the, the fighting and the conflict that comes after a death of a loved one over inheritance. You think, wouldn't we be helped as society if we just cast lots and said, well, you got that piece. So we see this in Scripture in First Chronicles. I'm sorry, backing up to Moses in Numbers. When Moses, God brings them into the land, God commands Moses that they're to cast lots to determine what land the Israelites were to get. Okay, this is where we first see it. Later, Joshua does the same thing by God's direction cast lots for this. There were seven tribes at the point when Joshua was leading that still didn't have land. And so they casted lots. We see it moving on. First Chronicles, we learn that lots were cast to determine what roles the Levites would have in the worship of God. And so we're told in chapter 25, First Chronicles, they cast lots for their duties, all alike, the small as well as the great, the teacher as well as the pupil. Okay, so there were no distinctions made. It doesn't matter how, what Levite you were, how you're schooling, you're, whatever. It was, they distributed it by lots, small and great, teacher and pupil. In Leviticus 16, God commands Moses and Aaron to cast lots upon two goats that were presented on behalf of the people. We're told that one lot was cast for the Lord, and the other one was cast on this, what was called the scapegoat. One goat was sacrificed to the Lord as the sin offering, and the other one, we're told, was to be presented alive before the Lord. It was to make atonement upon it 
God was to make atonement upon it and to send it into the wilderness as the scapegoat. Saul, you'll remember, casted lots to determine who had broken his oath to not eat honey, and it revealed it was Jonathan. Lots are cast again by Joshua to reveal the sin of Achan. If you remember, they bring the parties ahead and they cast lots for each one, and it winnows down to Achan. We see lots being cast in the book of Jonah to determine and to reveal why the storm was, was hitting the boat. And again, of course, the lot fell on, on Jonah, revealing it was because of him. Several, <clears throat> several things I want to highlight and things that are important for us to recognize as I read through these examples in Scripture. One, God does not condemn the use of casting lots. We don't find any place where God further reveals his unwillingness to have this practice taken out, carried out. And also we see God commanding it. With Moses, Joshua, right? God commanding and requiring that they did it with inheritance, with revealing things. And so we're looking at this passage today, and I want to ask you, have you ever casted a lot before? You know, to make a real, a real decision, I sort of a unscientific survey this week asking people, have you ever casted a lot? And I don't think anyone I asked had, except for one. Yeah, you just looked at me like, um, I don't think anyone had. Now, some were like, oh, yeah, you know, am I going to eat this pizza pizza or that pizza? You know, it's not that. I'm saying a real decision, a real decision. Probably most of us haven't. Now, why? You may have never thought of doing it. You may be unaware. You may think it's a really bad idea. <laughs> and I think for a lot of us, you know, this passage is probably striking. And I think it's because there's a sense of irresponsibility we feel on the part of the disciples for doing this, to using this method to choose between two men. Sort of lacks judgment isn't the best use of discernment, you know? Discernment. Stretch the word out. Discernment. Where's discernment with casting lots? Where's the discernment? I don't... We're not diminishing the importance of discernment. But I want to raise the question. Do you think it's possible that it was the most discerning thing to do for the disciples to cast a lot here? And if that's true, do you think there's ever a time in your life where it might be the most discerning and wise thing that you could possibly do? To flip a coin. The disciples did. They did it. They were led by God in this. We need to deal with this reality. The reality of Matthias being chosen by a casting of a lot. Or unless we'll, we'll say that the disciples weren't discerning. Or we might say that and ask why wouldn't it have been impossible for the disciples just to discern themselves and pick a replacement. We might also raise the objection, well, maybe these men were just both equally strong candidates and they couldn't decide, and so they had to flip a coin. Maybe the disciples were split down the middle. They couldn't unanimously decide, so they flipped. 
a few things to note about our passage and how it comes to us. One, I want to say, this is, needs to be remembered, there are criteria given for these men being chosen and presented. Remember, Peter says we need to bring men who have been with Christ since, really, since John the Baptist until now. Okay, so these aren't Joe Schmoes. These are proven, faithful, godly men. The other thing we need to note is the prayer. Okay, the disciples pray. They say, God, you know the hearts of men. Reveal it. And so there's prayer involved. Another thing I want to highlight is to pay close attention to the names given, okay, and how they're given. Now, this is always, this is true. I think we have a diminished understanding of names in our society, uh, less of an importance we place on them. The Word of God does not. Names are important. And so whenever we come across names and how they're recorded, how they're given, we should pay attention. Notice, look at your, at your Bibles. Notice Joseph is given what we'd say surnames, other names he was called by. Matthias, nothing's recorded. Luke doesn't add it. There's a reason Luke highlights this. There's a reason his name is given and Matthias's isn't. Barsabbas and also Justice. These names were given to Joseph. They were what he was known by, okay? So they were given to him, and they spoke to his character and the type of man that he was. They indicated his exceptional character. You know, we see this elsewhere in Scripture. If we just want to turn to Peter, is a prime example of receiving a name that he was called by. Simon Peter, when he's called by Christ, Jesus says, you're no longer being known by this, but you'll be called Cephas, right? Cephas, Aramaic word for rock, stone. It's also the Greek for Cephas, is, it's Peter. Okay? It's why he's called Simon Peter. It's why elsewhere he's called Cephas. Greek word, Petros, rock, stone, same thing, right? This name of Peter, Cephas, reflected his character and reflected his position in the church. Remember, Christ says, on this rock. Names are, they matter, they're important. How they're recorded. Barsabbas means son of an oath, son of rest, justice. You know, we know this, justice, just, upright, just. They're calling Joseph, he's just, he's known as the just. Speaks to his character. Now, this doesn't speak against Matthias's character. Of, I want to make that clear. But there's a reason Luke decides to include it. It's not an accident. And a strong argument can really be made, I think, from this, that the disciples very well could have favored Joseph over Matthias. That what Luke is wanting us to see here is that Joseph may have been the one that they wanted. You remember last week, Nathan mentioned what Matthias' name meant. Do you remember? God's small man. <laughs> so going on the names, you know, it's like, all right. I don't want to make too big of a deal. I, I will say Cal, John Calvin thinks it's no question that the apostles favored Joseph. And that's his position. It's no question they favored him. The other fact, I think it's as important, probably more important, we need to realize and remember is how often in Acts, especially early on, Luke highlights the unity of the church. It's so often Luke talks about the unity and how the, the disciples 
the people were of one mind. They were together. These disciples are not the same men we find in the Gospels who are fighting about who's the greatest, right? They're asking Christ, who's the, who's the greatest? These are changed men. They're together. They're unified. The unity among them is real. It's powerful. It's the strength of the church. It's a major theme of Acts. And so, not, of course, these men are not immune to disagreement, but it's just inconsistent with the narrative of Acts to say that these men were split and they couldn't decide. It's clear the apostles were unified. I don't think this means this decision is any different. In fact, if they're unity of over anything, it's <laughs> they wanted Joseph over Matthias. Sort of an aside right here, I, I, thinking about this passage, I thought about our work as training and raising up men in this church, something that we've always been committed to. Pastors, college students, elders, deacons, you know, I read this and I think, we need to remind ourselves that only God knows the hearts of men. And God has to choose men to lead his church. And we have to leave room for God to do this. Now, when I say leave room, I'm reminded our judgments need to be tampered. To not question who God will raise up. I think there's been times in the history of our church where some men we thought would sure fire and didn't work out, and other men we weren't sure about that are, I can't imagine our life without them and the blessing of our church. And so it's a helpful thing to remind her. God knows the hearts. You know, and there's such a, a beauty and a simplicity here of the disciples coming to God for this decision, not pretending they know everything. It's a beautiful thing, something we ought to remember. One of the helpful things, and this is tied to that, but one of the helpful things about, you know, if we ask the question, why did the disciples do this? Well, one of the helpful things about a cast lot is it removes all ambiguity. It removes all ambiguity. It's impossible. You can't question the outcome of a coin flip, of a lot, right? You can't question it. There's zero ground to question the integrity or the justice of that outcome. I was thinking about a football game as I was thinking about this. There, you watch a football game, there are endless split decisions that are made by the referees throughout the whole game, many of which get questioned and questioned and questioned. Uh, I have a note here. It's from my wife. It says, don't be snarky. I, when I practiced this with her, she said, you sound snarky. So I'm going to try. If it sounds snarky, just know this is the filtered version I think one of the, uh, a tragic example of our society's decaying respect for authority is seen in sports. If you don't believe me, go to a football game, a high school football game, and every parent in the stands is an expert and has the best view of the play and knows the right call. Do you want to, have you seen this? I mean, the parents, the, the, the fans know better than anyone what the right call is. And so we have a, we really have a distrust for referees. But there's one call made in the game that nobody questions. I've never heard a parent yell, how could you do that? You're terrible. What's that call? What's that outcome? It's the coin flip. <laughs> no one can argue the coin flip. 
No one can say, well, you just like that team, and so you let them choose. Nobody calls it. It's impossible to question the integrity of a coin flip. The ref can't show any bias or favoritism in a coin flip. He can't control the ability, the change the outcome. He doesn't have the ability to control it. It's the beauty of a coin flip, you know? It's never questioned. It's viewed as fair. We understand it's, it's random, okay? It's random. It falls where it will, and that's that. No one fights. Now, why? What's the connection? Well, to read a passage from Proverbs, it's a truth echoed in Scripture. Proverbs 18, 18 says, The cast lot puts an end to strife, and it decides between the mighty ones. Cast lot puts an end to strife. Do you see that? You can't fight. You can't question it. It's a decision. It's made and it's done. I think we understand this. It's one of the great, great advantages of a cast lot. It removes the question, the ambiguity, why it was made. Cancels out the potential for favoritism to be shown. It's random. But I've been saying random, but of course, it's not random. Casting lots, done in faith, it's a reflection of our understanding that God is sovereign. God is sovereign. It shows that we understand the coin will land how God wants the coin to land. Nothing is left to chance with God. Nothing's random. It might appear random. From our perspective, it might seem random. Everything has a purpose. Everything is ordained by God including the casting of lots. Proverbs 16, 33, the, cast, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. The cast lot, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. It's from God. Every decision. So we want to dismiss casting lots as a, a mystical maybe unhelpful way to approach God, but realize this isn't true. In fact, casting lots is it's a very powerful statement of your belief in God to lead direct and His control in your life. Have you ever casted a lot to make a real decision? I have. <laughs> Lucky me, right? I have an example. I uh, Years ago, when we were, I think, buying our, I don't know if it was our first, I think it was our first house. I, we found a home, and we didn't make much money then, so it, it, it would have stretched us big time. But it was a duplex. So my idea was, okay, we'll buy, we'll buy it, and we'll live in one side, and we'll rent out the other side. And then we'll be able to afford the mortgage. We couldn't have afforded the mortgage if we didn't have renters. So... A little bit of a risk. I was like, ah, you know, I kind of wanted to do it. But, you know, we vacillated. Oh, is this wise? Is this back and forth, you know? And I remember, now, I don't know if he told me to do it or not, but I'll blame him. I called Jordan Doherty and just to talk about it. And like I said, I don't remember if he told me this, but after that phone call, I thought, okay, I got to flip a coin. <laughs> Whatever Jordan said to me, he said, you just have to decide. Just decide. Trust God. So I flipped a coin, and what, I don't remember what it was, but it was not to buy it. 
Um, glad we didn't. It was in Waterville, and I we can't afford another pastor in Waterville, so. <laughs> we didn't buy it, and I'm grateful to God that we didn't. Um, but let me say, after I flipped that coin, it was the easiest decision I've ever made in my life. It was so easy. I had determined I was going to abide whatever result of the cast lot was. The first, and it was a, there was a peace. I'm like, oh, okay. This is what God wants. Now, you might think I'm crazy to think that. But I'm telling you, it was the easiest, the best I've really ever felt about making a big decision. Well, all right. God doesn't want us to. And I moved on. I mean, I'm telling you, it was that easy. I called my wife and said, we're not buying it. And it was just so clear from that time on. Do you ever, have you ever cast it a lot? Do you throw yourself at the judgment and the mercy of God and seek for things to be made clear by him and him alone? I've sort of been addressing it, but let me speak to it directly. There's a number of things that will, may keep you from ever saying, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm going <laughs> to make a decision by doing this. It's, kind of, it's risky, isn't it? There's a lot of risks associated with it. What decision will it be? And again, is it the right one? I think one of the things that keeps us from casting a lot or even having this approach to God where you say, all right, God, what do you want? I think one of the things that we may cite, and they're not bad objections, <laughs> wisdom and discernment. Now, I don't skewer me yet. Of course, wisdom and discernment are gifts, and they're to be pursued. But I often think where we might say wisdom and discernment, it's actually a warped view of what God wants us to do. We cite wisdom, we cite discernment, but it may not be what God wants from us. A well-known pastor, well-loved pastor, a great pastor, that many in this congregation love. He's not from here, just to clarify. But he wrote this regarding the disciples' casting of lots to choose Matthias. He's commenting on this passage. And I think what he says is a good representation of maybe how many of you feel, some of you feel, and, and really the Christian's approach in general to casting lots in this passage. He writes, lots are mindless things. God is not mindless. You're not mindless. Sanctification is not mindless. Discernment is not mindless. You have the mind of Christ. Now, there's a lot of truth in that quote. Don't hear what I'm not saying. But you take that quote in the context of this passage, what the disciples did, and I say that is complete garbage to say that. Lots are mindless. God's not mindless. You're not mindless. Discernment is not mindless. As if the mind is the key to unlocking the mysteries of God. That's what this man is saying. Is it really our minds? Do our minds discern perfectly the will of God? Did the church fathers, did the apostles not have the mind of Christ here? <laughs> Were they clueless? Was Peter's brain too small to understand the lots are mine? You have the mind of Christ, Peter. Discern. 
It's garbage. The expansion of our mind is not the pinnacle of wisdom and discernment. We have to remember this. Nor do our minds ever plumb the depths of who God is. I think one of the areas I think about, you know, many of, well, let me ask, how many of you have grown in years in wisdom and you find yourself, you realize that more often than not, you, you understand you don't know as much as you thought you did 10, 15 years ago. The things you were sure on, you're not as sure on. I think this is one of, uh, this is another aside, but a, an important one. An import, important, a critical thing to be understood by everyone, but especially a young man or woman growing in leadership, young men in the church, I call on you, I speak to you. The thing you have to come to realize to grow in wisdom is you don't know what you don't know. You just don't know what you don't know. It's one of the great troubles of a man growing in wisdom is, he asks, he's gaining wisdom and discernment, but he also knows that too. And then he begins to think, okay, I know something now. And if God's merciful, he'll give you a, you know, a big old whack and say, you don't have a clue. I mean, I had a big old whack early on as a parent. I remember Nathan and Aaliyah started this parenting class, you know, and I I think Vivian was, you know, one, two, just getting into parenting, you know, and I thought I, I knew. <laughs> you know, I had great parents who were great examples. I had a, a strong foundation with that. It was good things. And I remember going to that class the first couple of weeks, you know, like just kind of thinking, all right, yeah, I can contribute here. Not sure what I'll learn, but I could probably share. Oh, I'll tell you what, man, Vivian became a terror after that. I mean, just a terror. And I just remember it hitting me like, whew, I don't know what I don't know. Wisdom is not about having a massive head and infinite level of knowledge. So often wisdom says, I don't know. Let me ask God. <laughs> I don't know. Let me seek the Lord. And so learn this, young men, those aspiring to lead, come to realize you don't know everything. Realize your mind doesn't unlock secrets, that wisdom isn't a goggles you put on and now you see everything, and it's clear. <laughs> it's just not that way. Our minds can often be opposed to real discernment. Our minds deceive us. They lie to us. They puff us up. This is why Jesus says, the kingdom of God belongs to who? Children. Crazy. The kingdom of God belongs to children. The wise of this world don't inherit the kingdom of God. It's not for them. You must become like a child. When the Bible says it belongs to children, it's, what it's a call to is you must be like a child. It belongs to them. It's given first there. That's what you must be like. God loves the simple-minded. He hates your pride. He hates the pride you have of your mind, your intellect, what you think is wisdom and discernment. And not only they belong to the kingdom, but they're greatest in the kingdom of God. They're the greatest. Show me anyone in this church 
Who has a greater faith, a greater love for God, a greater joy in worship than Ephodocrates? Show me anyone. Love you, Epha. I'm not meaning to embarrass you, but wouldn't our church be more holy if we all worshiped like Epha? You know, and yet we want to sit here and say, oh, our minds. <laughs> the kingdom of God belongs to the simple-minded. Knowledge makes arrogant. Love edifies. If anyone supposes that he knows anything, he has not known yet as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he's known by him. Knowledge makes arrogant. So yes, casting lots is mindless. <laughs> it is. But what a helpful reminder of it being God who directs our every step. It's God. It's not just our wisdom. It's not the ways we discern things. It's God. What a beautiful way to approach God, isn't it? I mean, what a beautiful way to approach God. Simple, humble. God, show me. I'm not going to pretend to know. Show me. I think how blessed you would be to implement this in your life. Maybe you have a situation now. You don't know what to do. I was talking with uh, a young man this week in our church, and he's not sure what to do next in life. He's trying to figure out his career. He's, he's seeking God, seeking wisdom in it, doing all the right things. And I, I sort of said to him, you know, <laughs> you ever th flip a coin? <laughs> I mean, look. You just have to decide. I said to him, you can't live in fear. I think there's always a fear we have that, okay, if I choose this path, what if it's not right? Or if I choose that path, what if it's... Choose a path. Flip a coin if you must and go down it. Have a trust in God that he's working and he really is sovereign and he's directing your life and his will is being accomplished. Choose a path. Go down it. One of the things I'm trying to grow in in teaching youth group, I try to stop myself and say, you know what, I'm not going to qualify that. I'm not going to spend time qualifying so much. Because it's very easy to do, especially when you're really taking the Word of God serious, because a lot of what the Word of God says, it's just, it's like, oh, I don't want to, I've got to say this, or this just seems bad, right? So I try to do that sometimes. But, you know, you think one of the... So I don't want to qualify this. I, I think I could sit up here and say, oh, in this situation, this cast lots. You have to do that. Um, but I'm not going to qualify. You know, Scripture doesn't qualify the way we want it to, the way we think it should. You know, when the Bible says, ask for anything and you'll receive it, what do we say? Every one of us says it. I say it. What's the first thing? What does it not mean? Do you do this? Well, it doesn't, you know, you can't ask for everything. Now, I'm just saying, why would the Word of God give it to us that plainly? Don't qualify Scripture. It's a dangerous thing to do at times. The disciples chose godly, proven men, and they prayed. If there's anything that should guide us, let it be that, prayer. God, you know the hearts. But we have to act. You know, it's not just a matter of, and I, I'll probably hear this this week, but 
you know, you young people casting lots to see if you're going to go to school today or not, okay? <laughs> you understand this, I hope. The principle behind this action by the disciples is one of trust and a reliance on God's direction. They threw themselves at the Lord. They cast their lot before the Lord, so to say. They trusted that God's will would be accomplished, and they acted. Do not let false wisdom cloud your ability to discern the Word of God and cause you to second-guess God's working and will in your life. I really encourage you, cast your lot before the Lord. Cast a lot. But cast your lot before the Lord. Look to Him for wisdom and direction. Trust Him so He speaks to you. Don't try to know everything. Be okay not knowing everything. That's so often the case. Know that you're never going to know everything. It's impossible. Proverbs 3, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord, turn away from evil. Trust the Lord. Don't be wise in your eyes. Trust God. As I said earlier, there's a great deal of trust in a castle on. There's a fear to it. What if it's the right decision? What if it's not the right direction? We so often become anxious in our decision-making because of fear, because of unknowns, of not knowing what the Word of God is as clearly as we want to have it. But this, again, as I said, this is life. And let's not pretend there's not more anxiousness and fear involved with deliberating back and forth and you know, there really is a peace in saying, well, God's directing me. I'm going to go. Right? It might not be you always cast a lot. Like I said, I've done that once for a major thing. This isn't a weekly thing, okay? But really, it is an approach to God. It is an approach the disciples have, and it's what leads them to do this. But it really is an approach to God. Okay, God, I'm going to go. It's fuzzy, but I'm going to take steps, and I'm going to go. I think one of the other helpful things about and why God led the disciples to do this, there's no question that God wanted Matthias, right? There's no question. And so the disciples knew it. The church knew it. <laughs> this was of God. And again, a beautiful thing about this, it leaves no questions. God did this. God decided I didn't. God did this. We have to see the world through that lens. We have to understand that. Get out of our own ways. So we would do well to learn from the disciples in this example, in this approach to God, to see their wisdom, to see their discernment in choosing to do this and saying, okay, we need to make it clear that this is of God. It's an approach that recognizes it's God who directs every decision. It must be our approach as well. There's a great peace in trusting God this way. And this is why I hold this up to you this morning. There's a great peace in living this way, in trusting the result 
of a coin flip and seeing God behind it. It really is a simple way of viewing life, and it's a helpful way. So I encourage you, do not live in fear. Don't live in fear if God is leading you down the right path, if he's leading you in the right direction. Trust God. Move down whatever path he's placed you on. Trust him. If you're in a period of waiting, which often we are, pray, look to the word of God, see where God is calling you to move and act and live by faith. And I encourage you to close to... Follow the disciples' example in praying, Lord, you know the heart. Let your will be done. Lord, you know the heart. This must be all of our prayer. Let's pray.